Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Oh, good morning. Happy New Year. How are you? My name is Brad. If, if you don't remember, um, I'm one of the pastors here. And, um, it's, a, it's such a joy to, to be with you and to start this new year with you. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open it to Romans chapter 11 is where we left off a few months ago and where we'll pick back up. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the rack in front of you. Keep that Bible if you don't own one. It's our gift to you. We are going to read the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 11 in just a moment and work our way through it um, as you're finding that. Let me, let me just first say, let me say thank you to the, uh, to, to the elders and fellow pastors of this church. They have um, been such an encouragement and support to me during this time of rest. Uh, thank you to the other brother pastors who faithfully ministered God's word in my absence uh, and, and thank you to you, to the church, for just your love and care. So many notes and emails, which um, I haven't yet responded to all of them. I kind of unplugged for a couple months, and, and Lord willing, I'll, I'll respond here in the coming days. But just thank you. Thank you for that. I had a wonderful time. I spent a lot of time in, in California visiting my family. I had the opportunity to go with a brother from this church to Cuba and to um, do some ministry there in Cuba. Uh, and so it was just a wonderful time of God's grace. I'll share maybe a little bit more about that next weekend in the evening at our member meeting. Um, and also, just, just in case you were wondering, I, I, I think it would be difficult for some of you if I didn't comment on this. While I was away, um, my alma mater, Army football, <laughs> beat Navy for the third straight year, won the Commander-in-Chief trophy, and followed all of that up by a victory over the University of Houston in a bowl game by the score of 70 to 14, a 56-point victory, which ties the largest margin of victory ever for any bowl game ever. So if you are from Houston or you're a fan of the University of Houston, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Actually, I was in Cuba during the uh, Army-Navy game, and so I wasn't able to watch it and didn't really have internet access, and it was laborious. Um, but I found out, I was able to call Jennifer and, uh, after the game and find out that we won. Let me read Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, and then if you're, if you're with us for the first time here today and you're maybe made a New Year's resolution to come to church, you may be thinking, oh, this is just kind of in the middle of a book, what I, I might be behind. Don't worry, we'll catch you up. Um, we, we have been, as a church, working through this letter to Romans. This is our practice for the vast majority of our Sundays to just work through books of the Bible. We started in Romans in January of 2017, so about two years ago. We've taken some breaks along the way, and, and we're picking back up in Romans 11. And so I'm going to read Romans 11. Again, if you're, if you, you may initially feel a little disoriented, but, but as we go, I think you'll get the context and, and uh, you'll catch up. And I think that there are some, some truths in Romans 11 verses 1 through 10 that are particularly poignant and applicable to us as we begin this, this new year. So let me read Romans 11 verses 1 through 10. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and we'll talk about the context of Romans 11 here in just a moment, but let me read the text first. I ask then, has God rejected his people? He's speaking of ethnic Jews. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal was a false pagan god that Israel was tempted to worship. Verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant. It's a word meaning a small group of people that God has preserved 
so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Drop your notes for Sunday back. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. All right, well, lots, lots to think about today. And at the end of this message, we're, as our custom is, we're coming to the table to receive communion on the first Sunday of 2019 and the first Sunday of January. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, just thank you for your grace. Remnant saving, idol resisting grace. Lord, what we, what we know not, I pray that you'd teach us. What we have not and truly need, I pray that you'd, you'd grant us. And what we are not, and what we need to become, I pray that you would make us. Do this, Lord, I pray for your glory and for the good of your people and for the salvation of any in this room that do not know Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we can understand the context of Romans 11, we have to understand the context of Romans up to this point. Don't worry, I know it's been a while since I've been here, and you're thinking, I'm going to be here till one. You're not. But I think it would be good for us just to, to, to remind ourselves of the message of Romans up to this point. So really the burden of Romans is, how can God, in a sense it's a kind of justification of God, it's Paul justifying the fact that a holy God would allow anybody to be in his presence. How can God remain just when clearly all of us don't deserve to be in his presence? It's, it's a really, it's a defense of God's righteousness in light of him saving unrighteous people. And so Paul up to this point is saying that all mankind, whether it's Jews or Gentiles, everybody, religious, non-religious people are guilty before a holy God. And so we are in a predicament where we need God, we need to be righteous, we need to stand before him someday, but we can't because all of us have failed. We've all, we've all rebelled against his law, whether that law was written on tablets or whether it was written on our hearts. We've all rebelled against God. But God, in his grace, has put forward a new humanity, a new human, Jesus the new man who is the son of God from eternity past, not created, always part of the Trinity. But Jesus became a man. God the son became a man, lived a perfect life, laid down his life on the cross to bear the punishment that should have been ours and then raise again in victory over death, sin, and the grave so that all that by faith trust in Jesus can be made righteous, can, can stand with and be reconciled with God. That's the good news of Romans. And oh, by the way, even this faith that God gives people when they, when they exercise it, when they place it in Jesus, is a gift. It's not something that we can bring on our own. And that's really a big part of Romans 8 and 9. How the only way that anybody can actually get this gift of faith and then be made right with God is through God's purpose of election. In other words, God's free grace to give it to whom he wills. And then, in Romans 11, where we get, we have this question where Paul is answering this objection, and it's really been the objection of Romans 9, 10, and 11, because his New Testament, his first century readers, many of them Gentiles in the Roman church, are becoming Christians, they're hearing this glorious gospel, and they're hearing this good news that Paul says that you were, you were separated from God, God has reconciled you, and he will bring you safely home. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's the high point of Romans 8. And then he's anticipating the objection that this first century believer or Gentile might have. Well, wait a minute now, Paul. You're saying that this gospel is so glorious and so powerful 
to save people who don't deserve to be saved, and to bring them all the way home and make sure that they endure to the end. What about when I read in the Old Testament how your people Israel, that you specially selected in the Old Testament, like you say you're specially selecting me by grace, they seem to have rebelled against you. And it seems like, for the most part, your word failed in the Old Testament. Can it be trusted in my life? And Romans 9, 10, and 11 is, is, is Paul's response to that, that yes, God can be trusted. And the way he says that that is true is in Romans chapter 9, he says that not all of Israel, just because they're ethnic Israel, is truly Israel. There's something more to being a Jew, and it's not ethnicity, it's a spiritual condition. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9. So he's saying, no, no, you actually misunderstand I have a true Israel, and true Israel are those descendants of Abraham, not ethnically, but descendants of Abraham's faith, those that have trust in Jesus. And that's his point in Romans chapter 9. And then in Romans chapter 11, he's coming back around and he's saying, but wait, before we move on to Romans chapter 12, and we start applying all of this gospel into the everyday aspects of our lives, let me just answer one final objection. What is God done with ethnic Israel? What about these, these ethnic Jews? Is God done with, him, with them? And Paul's emphatic answer in Romans chapter 11 that we're going to see in the coming weeks and this morning is no, God is not done. God's rejection of ethnic Israel is not final. He is going to save a great number of Jews, ethnic Jews, on the last day. Just a quick application before we, before we work through the text. Even, even seemingly hopeless situations are not beyond God's grace and power. Israel had rejected God, and God is saying through Paul here, I'm coming back around, and nothing can thwart my will. So let's get into it. Let's just look at Romans chapter 1 and work our way through it, and then I want us to settle on Three truths to apply. Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? That's the question. Has God rejected ethnic Israel who by and large have rejected Jesus? Remember, he go, he's burdened to say in Romans chapter 9 that a true Jew is not an ethnic descendant of Abraham, but a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And so there is an Israel so all of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament, I think, are actually fulfilled in the people of God, those who are in Christ, who's the one true Jew. But just as a kind of, a kind of gracious boomerang, God's coming back around and he's saying, but I'm not done with those people, by no means. And Paul says, for I myself am an Israelite, I'm an ethnic Jew, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So the question is, has God rejected these ethnic Jews who by and large have rejected him? And, and, and Paul's going to give us four reasons. And his reason number one is, is no. Look at me personally. He kind of starts with the smallest concentric circle, his own life. And he says, I'm an ethnic Jew, and I'm a true believer in Jesus. I'm a true spiritual Jew, not just an ethnic Jew. So my life is proof that God has not rejected, at least for me. And then he continues, verse 2, has, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So he expands it and he says, no, there's this Old Testament promise that God not only is going to gather a spiritual Israel, but he foreknew Israel, Israel as a people. And so he uses this word, this theological term in verse 2, that he actually used about individual salvation in Romans chapter 8 about how God foreknew them. And when it says that God foreknew Israel, it's not that he just knew something about them. Remember what we talked about in Romans 8, 29? This foreknowledge of God is not that he, he knows that you have dark hair and brown eyes. Clearly God knows that. But it's, it's knowing in a sense of intimacy, right? How, like the Bible will say sometimes, Adam knew his wife Eve. You know that means that he knew more than her height and weight, right? Okay, I don't... We, Okay, it's a foreloving, an intimacy. Of course, God knows everything about all the peoples of the earth, but he has foreloved us and he has foreloved Israel. God has had a plan for Israel. He's not done with them because he has foreloved them. Second part of verse two, do you not know what scripture now? So he's personal reason. 
Then he talks about Israel, and then he's going to look to the Old Testament and say, I'm going to show you some proof from the Old Testament how there is this small group of ethnic Jews that God has saved and has kept as a remnant of people, even in the darkest of days. So even that is evidence that God's not done with Israel in the future. So do you not know? Here he's going to refer in verse 2 to what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. This is Elijah speaking to God right now. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. That's, that's a sad report. Elijah's not, he's not having a good day. But what was God's, what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Okay, to understand the point that Paul is making here, we need to understand the context of the scene that Paul is referencing. And it's a scene that comes from the Old Testament in 1 Kings, specifically chapter 18 and 19. So here's what's happening. Let me just summarize what's going on. God has raised up a king in Israel, David. And David is this wonderful kind of shadow of the true and better king to come, who is Jesus. David's not perfect, so we need a true and better king. David dies. His son Solomon comes to power. In many ways, he's a very selfish man, a very wise man, but a very selfish man. He dies, and then his son takes over. And the kingdom of Israel, that is to be this kind of picture of God's blessing through his people so that he would bless all the peoples of the earth, takes a southward turn. It goes downhill. The kingdom splits, and there's all of these kings, and these split the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And that's what first and second kings are primarily about. It's about the descent of disorder and rebellion of God's people, and the vast majority of bad kings who lead God's people into idol worship, <laughs> which is wonderfully encouraging. Because God is not done with his people, even though they are, are very idolatrous, like us. And so in the middle of 1 Kings chapter 18, <clears throat> we see this picture of Elijah, this prophet that God has raised up, who is this courageous speaker for God. And there is this king of God's people, Ahab, who marries this wicked woman, Jezebel. And Jezebel wants Elijah to be killed because he's speaking truth and he is trying to return God's people to the right worship of God and is warning them about the, pro the, 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 the false gods that Jezebel and her people are bringing, are, 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 are poisoning God's people with. And so there's this incredible scene in 1 Kings verse, uh, chapter 18 that maybe many of you are familiar with where Elijah has this confrontation with these false prophets of this false god named Baal. And Elijah shows remarkable courage. He says, okay, let's have a little contest here between the one true God and your God. Let's get an altar. Let's sacrifice a bull, and we'll put one on my altar and then on yours, and we'll call. I'll call for my God to bring down fire to consume that sacrifice, and you call on your God to bring down fire on your sacrifice. And so Elijah, is, he's not only confident, he's a little salty. He mocks these false prophets of Baal, and he says, when they're trying to call down fire and nothing's coming, he's like, where's your God? Is he not listening? Oh, maybe he's going to the bathroom. I mean, he, that, that's in the Bible. And nothing happens. And so the Prophets of Baal have their tail between their legs, and they're like, oh, man, that didn't work. And Elijah says, okay, now my turn. And he says, but before I call down fire from the one true God on this altar of sacrifice with this animal slayed, and, and, and on, let, let's just wet it down. Let's, let's, let's pour water on the wood just, just to make it even more miraculous. And at the end of 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah calls down fire on wet wood, and that stuff goes like just boom. And then, check out 1 Kings 19. After this courageous event where Elijah has just called down fire on wet wood and has ran off these false prophets, this courageous man of God, all of a sudden, is now scared of Jezebel. 1 Kings chapter 19 Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. 
verse 1, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Oh yeah, by the way, he killed all those jokers too. <laughs> That's bold now. Come on. You were talking smack, and then you killed them. And that's how chapter 18 ends. And now, all of a sudden, you're going to be scared of the queen. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Verse 3, then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. What? What? He just called down fire on wet wood and killed what some 400 dudes with a sword. And now he's scared of Jezebel. As if God is on sabbatical in chapter 19. <laughs> Friends, just take a, take a moment to consider this scene and, and, and then what happens is then he goes and there's this famous scene where, where Elijah's under this broom tree and he's just like, oh, Lord, take my life, take my life. And God speaks to him and he's kind of like, oh, just in grace. But I, it's almost like, get up, eat. And then, and then, and then in verse, verse, verse 10 of, of 1 Kings 19, it says, this is Elijah. This is what Paul is quoting. Elijah's like, he's just, he's so, just that. Just see the despair and the doubt in Elijah's soul. He's like, man, I, I, you worked through me, but, but God's people are still not following the one true God. And he just, the days are dark. In verse 10, he says, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the Lord God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's exactly what Paul quotes in, verse, in chapter 11. And again, the Lord encourages him and he says, get up, go stand on the mountain before the Lord. And then all the way down at verse 18 of Romans, I mean, of 1 Kings 19, chapter, chapter 19, verse 18, God is speaking to Elijah and he's saying, be encouraged. Even though it seems like all of my people have rejected me, look at verse 19 of first, uh, verse 18 of 1 Kings 19. It says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, even though the days are dark, Elijah, be encouraged, I have a people. Nothing can thwart my promises. I'm in charge of this. I'm in control. The days are not as dark as they seem. Just one little truth to apply before we move on. I mean, come on, even the strongest among us are still completely dependent on God's grace. I mean, isn't it encouraging to read that Elijah, a, a, like a, a powerful prophet of God in the Old Testament, I mean, he prayed for rain, rain came. He prays fire down on wet wood and kills these false prophets. Homeboy was the stuff. And he's, and one chapter later, he's got his tail between his legs. He is spiritually schizophrenic. And I, and I want to say, I feel like that, don't you? Come, come on, man. That should just cause us to be humble and understanding and all sorts of other things towards each other that are good. Amen? All right. I need you a little, little bit more out of you guys. <laughs> Verse 5. So, too, at the present time, so Paul has reflected on his own personal life, this theological foreknowledge that God has of Israel, this Old Testament example of this remnant that he's chosen, that he's, that he's preserved to not, fall, to not worship Baal. And then verse 5, so too at the present time. There's a bunch of first century ethnic Jews, certainly the 12 disciples and the, the hundreds that were gathered on the day of Pentecost that came to faith in Jesus. So too at the present time, there is a remnant a group of people that God has preserved, that's what that means, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, verse 6, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So reason four here is that Paul says now there are Jews, there are now Jews who trust in Jesus, and they got there by grace. So Paul is underscoring the point that he's made all along. That not only has God saved true Israel, Jews and Gentiles, anybody that's come to faith in Jesus, 
But he's not given up on ethnic Israel because there's a small group of people, even in this present time, that he has chosen, and they got there by grace. And by the way, grace isn't based on works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's Paul's point. Verse 7, what then Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect, so he's speaking Israel in mass, the majority of Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, those that God has chosen out of ethnic Israel, obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Now, the, the, those verses 7 and 8 are verses that um, American Christians, in fact, this whole idea of God's sovereignty over salvation is something that American Christians uniquely struggle with in comparison to other Christians around the earth. Why? I think because we are a proud self-dependent people. And we believe in a a kind of manifest destiny that I am the captain of my own soul and the Bible goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And it says that we are, when, when we see things like this where it says that the elect obtained it by grace, not by works, and the rest were hardened. God gave them a spirit of stupor so that they would not see. Friends, we need to not just breeze over that. We need to be humbled by that and realize that God is in control. And if you're a Christian, it's not because you had something in you that God decided to bring on board to his team, but it's simply because of his free, free, unconditional grace. But notice, notice, look, look, look closely at what it says about, about God's hardening. We talked about this at the end of Romans 9. It says that God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see. And there's this sense when, when God hardens a person's heart, not, listen, this is important because this is an objection that people sometimes have to God's sovereignty in all things, especially to salvation. We have this picture that when the Bible speaks about God's hardening of a person's heart, that people want God and he is rejecting them and hardening their heart and actually turning them around as they are coming towards him. Friends, that's not the biblical picture of how God deals with people. The Bible is clear that we are all fallen in sin and because of that we are running away from God. Now, That may mask itself in different forms. Some people may be just sort of obviously rebellious. But the Bible's clear that sometimes rebellion takes the form of a kind of moralistic religious self-righteousness where people appear to be coming to God, but actually when they are appearing to be coming to God and self-righteous, it's a kind of veiled rebellion against God. And, And what Paul is saying here is that God is giving people up to what they already want. In fact, that's what Paul says. Listen, listen to what he says at the end of chapter 10 of Romans, Romans 10. It says, of Israel, Romans 10 verse 21. Just, just look right up there. But of Israel, he says, of this unbelieving Israel that he's hardened. So the Israel, the, Israel, the, the, the Jews that he's hardened, look at what, what he says of them in verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So God is holding out his hands when people are, are, are he, he's giving them up to what they want. Listen to what Jesus says in, in the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. So do you see this? Do you see the tension here? When God hardens a person's heart, whether it's Pharaoh's or whether it's Israel's who's rejected or whether it's mine or yours, it's not that God is changing our mind and we really want God and he's not allowing us entrance into his grace. It's God giving people up to what they already want. Friends, let that that chasten us. Let that warn us. God 
God is not giving a person up to something they don't deserve, and he's not giving them something that they do not want. The converse of that is that when he does give somebody grace, it's not because they deserve it, but it's because of his free grace. Verse 9, David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And this is striking. We won't take much time on this, but there he's quoting Psalm 69, which is really a psalm about Jesus who is the victim of the oppression, of the sin of the people. And Israel historically would have read Psalm 69 as if they were the suffering servant and they would have applied the oppressors to meaning their enemies. But here, Paul applies Psalm 69. He turns the tables and he says, no, actually, unbelieving Israel, you're the oppressor and God is the victim. And so your, your oppressing has become a snare and a trap. Here's just one little truth before we settle down on these three things that I want us to say is that man's, this is, I just thought about this, man's natural instinct is to see, I know mine is, our natural instinct is to see ourselves as the victim. But the Bible's instinct is to tell mankind that he by nature is the enemy of God and ensnared by his own hardened heart. And that his only hope is that God would change his heart so that he can be rescued by God and stop being an enemy of God. Happy New Year, by the way. But this is, this is the Bible. All right, three truths I want us to focus on to apply this as we land this plane. And they come from verses 4, 5, and 6. So let me read verses 4, 5, and 6 again. What is God's reply to him? This is God replying to Elijah. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, don't be discouraged, Elijah, even though everything around you feels like it's falling apart. I am in control. I have kept a people for myself, even out of these people that have rejected me. Not only is true Israel going to be all those that have faith in Jesus, but, but, I'm, but I'm coming back around and I'm not forsaking them. I'm going to save a remnant of them. And there's 7,000 of them right now that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. It's not as bad as you think, Elijah. Verse 5, so too at the present time, there is a remnant Chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So, here's the question, three quick thoughts. How does a right understanding of remnant saving grace help us? How does a right understanding of what Paul is saying here, so you see the main point? He's saying, he's, the, really chapter 11 is a kind of parentheses in the whole argument of Romans. He's making this glorious point about the power of the gospel to save and that God has a people. But what about those people that seem to, you know, God's power seems to have failed with? He's saying he's not done with them yet. And so that should be an encouragement to us that there is this powerful grace that God saves even rebellious, stubborn people for his glory. So how does a remnant saving grace help us? One truth to apply. First, it magnifies God's glory in salvation. It magnifies God's glory in salvation. Why is seeing this so important? Why do we need to make such a big deal out of this? Why is this a constant theme that we speak about here often? Because the Bible makes a big deal of it. If we construct an existence where God is there to serve us, we will eventually crash, and we will crash hard. But if we orient ourselves to a biblical view where God is the blazing center of all things, then we line ourselves up to the way God has made the universe and how and the, the end to which it is marching, which is the glory of God in all things. I think verse 6 is really a kind of one of those verses that's a kind of Bible, little mini Bible, it's like a little gospel summary. Verse 6 says, but if it, salvation, right standing with God, is by grace, 
it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Friends, whether you are first hearing this or whether you have been a believer in Jesus for 40 years, you need to be reminded of this. That the gospel is not some mushy combination of God's graciousness and our good intentions and effort. No, it is the free gift of God. And every Christian that's been a Christian for more than 10 minutes suffers from the same dreaded disease of gospel amnesia and needs to remember this. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We live in a me-centered world. And the most relevant thing that we can do because you think, oh, Brad, give me something that could help me on Tuesday. And, you know, it magnifies God's glory and salvation. That's some high, lofty theological point. I need something relevant. I'll give you something relevant. In a world that is, that is addicted like a heroin addict to self, hearing the gospel repeatedly helps you detox from the drug that we are all naturally addicted to. Amen. <laughs> I mean, we just, man, we just, but Sunday's so good, but by the time Friday comes, man, we're, we're just tapping that vein, wanting more of me. And we need, to, we need to hear it, that God saves us by grace, not because of anything good in us. He uses means, but because of his grace, he, listen to me, Christian, to, to the proud Christian, you need to hear this. He loves you simply because he loves you. And to the weak Christian, to the one who thinks that God is ready to give up on you, no, 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 friends. He loves you not because of anything in you, but he loves you because he loves you. The second, the second truth that I want us to apply as we look at this text is that it, seeing remnant saving grace <laughs> helps us. It fortifies us in times of despair and doubt. It fortifies us in times of despair and doubt. Remember Elijah's despair. I mean, come on, think about Elijah and how he was just willing to give up on God. And God, in fact, God, in, in that scene in 1 Kings 19, Elijah's sitting under this tree and God brings this, this wind, this hurricane and an earthquake and I think a fire. And it says that God wasn't speaking in any of those things. But a still small voice of God came to Elijah in his despair to give him this word of hope. It reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Problem of Pain. This beautiful quote. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And in these times of despair and doubt, friends, that Elijah was experiencing, that all of us can think about our lives, that is not outside of God's sovereign plan. It's, it's not like God was arranging the universe and, you know, he was kind of busy over here while this thing, unbeknownst to him, was happening to you. Psalm 139 says that he knows our days. Every one of them is numbered before one of them comes to be. And it's in those times of doubt and despair that God is working. He worked in Elijah and he's working in us. He's in control. Take this, take this theological point about how God is dealing with Israel and apply it to your life. God's not done. He's not defeated. The days are dark, but he's in charge. Our loss of perspective does not limit God's providence. And oh, that's a truth I need to hear. Our, our loss of perspective does not limit God's providence. Does anybody else struggle with that? Like you, like, am I the only kind of frail Christian in here where it's like, man, something will happen and it just seems like that situation is like, Mount Everest. And every truth that you've believed up to that point is a million miles away. <laughs> can, I, can I get a witness? 
And that's, come on. And I'm, I'm just strangely encouraged. I mean, I wish for our boy Elijah that it, chapter 19 would have went better for him, but I'm just strangely, strangely encouraged that that's in the Bible because here's this great man of God who has his tail between his legs. Ah, I'm just, yeah. And friends, we need one another to help each other in these times, don't we? Come on, the Bible speaks to this. It's not just some magical little Tinkerbell dust that God sprinkles on you when you're asleep. How does this perspective change from, from, from a me-centered the situation's too big for God. I'm under the broom tree. Just take me now, God. Just kill me. How does that, how do we come out of that? Does God have a tooth fairy that sprinkles stuff on us when we sleep? No. He has his Bible, his spirit that indwells us, and the body of Christ to encourage us. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. At one time in our life, everybody in this room will be either idle, faint-hearted, or weak. So don't, don't say, oh yeah, yeah, I need to be that to somebody. Yes, and somebody needs to be that to you. Probably before the week is out. Thirdly, how does... Remnant saving grace and understanding it help us. It empowers us to resist our own idols. Notice what God said to Elijah about this remnant that he has preserved. He says that they have not bowed their knee to Baal. Baal was this false pagan god that Israel was tempted to worship. Baal, in fact, the word Baal literally means master. Think about that. I mean, if you're going to worship something and its name is master that might be a clue to avoid it but nevertheless we're aren't we we're dull aren't we and and what paul is saying here is that this grace that saves isn't just a forgiving grace it's an enabling grace it's an empowering grace it's a sanctifying grace God just doesn't save us from our past sins. He comes and takes residence in us and dwells in us and empowers us to fight and live for him. In fact, friends, that's what Romans 6 is all about. Let's just review what we looked at sometime in the past. Romans 6. Look at, look at verse 4. Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. In other words, Jesus died for our sins, past tense, but he got up from the grave and gave us new life so that we too can walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, enslaved to worship our former idols. So here's the question as we conclude and as we come to the table in just a moment. What, what are our idols? I don't think that any of you have a little statue of Baal in your house. If you do, please let us know soon and let's talk. But you understand that these false gods are not necessarily little false pagan gods of the Old Testament. This is a kind of picture of the Christian life. In fact, John Calvin, the great reformer, says that the human heart is an idle factory. We just, we just, we're like the Kia car plant up in West Point. We just crank out new idols. And our idols aren't necessarily little gold statues, but they're, 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 they're even good things that when they become ultimate things, be, become idolatrous things in our life. A couple idols that I just thought about maybe in my own life and in the life of this congregation. Uh, maybe there's an idol in your life of parenting, about, about our kids just being the center of our lives. And kids are a wonderful gift from the Lord, but they are not ultimate. And we judge ourselves harshly and we're critical of other people. As social media has made us exposed to one another, parenting has become almost like a like a contact sport, especially for young mothers. 
It's like you're just, you're wondering if your baby measures up to your friend's baby in the playgroup. And, you know, if your baby's not, like, listening to Beethoven and asleep through the night by the time they're two months old and potty trained before they're one and, you know, eating carrots and asking for broccoli for dessert, you think that you're a failure. And friends, that's a, that can be, I mean, come on, let's be good parents. Let's not just let them play in the street. But do you see how it can be, it can become an idol. It can become an idol. It can. Another one, you know, I'm back from sabbatical and I haven't had any zinger emails for a while, so let me just throw this one out there. Um, I tell you what I think is a big idol for many American Christians, especially many middle class to upper middle class Christians, is politics. I think we, I, 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 if you are prone, and I think this cuts not just middle to upper middle class Christians, I think, I think, it's, I think it's the human soul. If you are prone to be more excited or comfortable or sort of whatever about this country because your political party is in charge, your hope is misdirected. And if you put your hope in a wicked, vile, unregenerate national leader, you are worshiping an idol. I'm not saying God doesn't use, he uses people all across the spectrum, of course he does. And I'm not saying that God isn't in control, but if you think that there is any true hope in any politician, whether it's a mayor or a governor or a senator or a president, you may be very vulnerable to a uniquely American idol of political power. Friends, God is not dependent on American exclusivism or American power or American anything for that matter for the advance of his kingdom. We are a we are a tiny little speck on the march of human history. Having said that, let's be good citizens. Let's, let's seek the good of our city as, as, Paul, as, 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 as the prophet in the Old Testament encourages Israel to do when they are in captivity. But friends, America is not some new Jerusalem. It is a recapitulation of an old Babylon. And so, yeah. In my email is, actually I have Logan Copley as my new assistant, so you can email me at logan at insidecrosspoint.com <laughs> and he will use his best discernment as to whether or not he should forward that on to me. <laughs> but you know there's even something more subtle. It's a kind of pragmatism. A kind of the idol of pragmatism. And you know, we, we, we bash like health and wealth gospel people because we think, oh, well, they're just trying to use God as like a, a means to comfort or health or wealth or prosperity, you know. They take these verses out of context about giving and, and they falsely apply them to their life as if they give and some charlatan preacher on TV is bilking these retired, you know, grandmas out of their 401ks because they're sending all this money thinking that God will promise them, you know, give them great blessing and fortune. And we think, oh, what a shame, what a shame, what a shame. But friends, we, we, are, we, we have a, a more subtle and veiled version of that same thing. We think that if we believe the right things, that if we have good doctrine, that if we occasionally quote John Calvin and read John Piper books and, we have, and we're in the right stream of Christianity, that somehow or another, because we have good doctrine, that things will kind of go well for us. Friends, that is, that's the same barn painted a different color. That's not the way God is obligated to work. And we can actually make a, an idol out of our right understanding of the Bible, thinking that God is somehow now obligated to grow our church, bless my family, make my kids obey, or whatever thing that we add on that we say God is now obligated to do. What Paul is saying here is that no matter what happens, God is in control. 
His, his grace saves a remnant and empowers us to identify our idols and slay them as we march towards our heavenly home. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace, remnant-saving, idol-resisting grace that is greater than all our sin and all of our idols added up for the glory of God and for the joy of his people. Be encouraged as we come now to the table. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I pray that you've heard the gospel. I pray that you realize that your only hope is the Son of God, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. If you're not a believer in Jesus, as we take this communion together, as we take this meal together, I encourage you not, not to come to the table, not because we're trying to exclude you, but because we don't want you to confess something that you don't yet believe. We would much rather go slow with you and talk with you after the service more clearly about what it means to be a Christian and answer any questions that you may have. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come to this table to receive this bread and this juice that represents Jesus' body and blood that was broken and spilled for his people so that we might be saved and so that we might resist our idols and live for him in our own dark days, just as Elijah did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this passage in Romans. May you remind the, those among us that are feeling weak that you love us simply because you love us. May you rouse the proud among us that somehow think that they have something good to offer you in and of themselves, that you love us simply because you love us. And for all of us who are tempted to wander away, those of us who are prone to wander and worship these false gods, even though we know you as the one true God, bring us back, Lord. Remind us, reorient us, recenter our hearts. Remind us of this remnant-saving grace that helps us to resist our idols. I pray that you'd help us with these things. In Jesus' name.